Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. And they are here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Have you had a leaky roof? We did, and it was a nightmare. But through Angie, we found an amazing roofer who specialized in flat roofs, and he fixed it right and quickly. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com, that's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The app and website are both free to use. That's Angie.com. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. We just, uh, we just heard the, uh, the last hour of this extraordinary January 6th select committee of the House of Representatives investigating the January 6th terrorist attack on the U.S. Capitol. On the line with us is the former chief law enforcement officer of the United States, the 82nd Attorney General of the United States from 2009 to 2015, the third longest serving U.S. Attorney General, in fact, Eric Holder. And uh, General Holder, welcome, welcome to the program. I'm curious, first of all, your thoughts on what happened on January 6th, uh, how this committee is conducting itself, both the law enforcement side of this, the America side of this, and the political side of it, if you have any thoughts. Sure. Well, thanks first for having me, Tom. What I'd say was this. I mean, let's cut straight to it. What happened on January the 6th was an attack on our democracy. That was just not a protest, not even just a violent protest. It was an attempt to subvert the democratic process, to stop the peaceful transfer of power, and it has to be viewed in that way. I was taken back watching the hearings. I've not had a chance to watch them all because I'm working here. I was taken back to another time. They reminded me in, in some ways of the Watergate hearings, where the nation's attention was riveted to what was going on during that hearing. And I think the nation's attention needs to be riveted on these hearings as well. What we heard from those, those officers today was, was powerful. It was illuminating. And it was also prescriptive. They shared, at least in, at the beginning, we're just at the beginning stages now, the things that we need to do to ensure that this doesn't happen again. Chief among them, figuring out why this happened, who was responsible for it, who brought this about. And then we can certainly look at the events of the day. But I hope the focus will not only be on January the 6th, but those days preceding, those months preceding January the 6th, the organizations and people who brought this about. And again, do not forget, this was an attack 
on American democracy. That sentiment was echoed by, by the four police officers as well, and it's extraordinary. I want to talk with you about the uh, For the People Act and the Republicans' continued uh, attacks on voting rights. This is something that you're working on uh, very aggressively, but bef before I get to that, I just want to get some of this stuff kind of out of the way. The Department of Justice right now seems to be struggling, shall we say, with the issue of how to deal with uh, many of the things that happened before uh, before President Biden was inaugurated as president. You had five different cabinet secretaries, for example, who were referred to the DOJ for prosecution. There's just a whole collection of concerns that uh, no doubt are, are sitting at uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland's uh, feet right now. To what extent might Trump holdovers in the DOJ or I mean, is that is that something that we should be concerned about or that Garland should be concerned about? What can you tell us about how the DOJ works that might inform our understanding of what's going on there right now? Yeah, I don't think that should be a primary concern to the American people. Um, the, the Justice Department, where I served for, you know, probably close to 30 years, is really peopled with employees who, they might be Republicans, they might be Democrats, they might be independents, conservatives, progressives, whatever, who really kind of leave their political leanings at the door and decide cases on the facts and the law. And to the extent that there was that thin layer of political appointees from the Trump administration, they have largely, they're pretty much gone. Now, some of them may have, as the term we use, burrowed in. I think that given the new political leadership that we have there, Vanita Gupta, um, Merrick Garland, Kristen Clark, Elisa Monaco, all those people, I think that we can feel assured that the decisions that will be made there will not be influenced by Trump holdovers. We may disagree with what it is this Justice Department does, but it'll be a function of what this new administration, this new Justice Department, this Justice Department is acting in a way consistent with the way in which the DOJ at its best um, conducts itself. It, it'll be as a result of those decisions and not influenced by, um, by Trump holdovers. Yeah. Now, you were certainly, as, as Attorney General, uh, you know, uh, overseeing or, or participating in enforcement of the Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, uh, legislation that that made sure that everybody, regardless of a race or other station in life, is are able to vote and participate in our democracy. Um, this seems to be coming under considerable attack, both from the Supreme Court and from other quarters. And you're working now on trying to strengthen our right to vote. The same moment that, for example, Georgia and, and uh, well, 17 states now have said that if partisan Republicans don't like the outcome of of an election, apparently. I mean, the strategy is going to be like there are they're already replacing election officials, for example, in largely black counties in, in Atlanta. I used to live down there. This is just shocking stuff. What's going on? Yep. Uh, tell us about about your work, about what you're doing right now and your thoughts on this. Well, first time, I'd agree with what you just said. I mean, the word you just said is important. Is important. It, what they're doing now is shocking. And that's, that's a great word. This is a multi-pronged attack on our democracy. Certainly what happened on January the 6th and what led up to that insurrection, uh, these voter suppression measures that are being passed, considered in the states, I guess 400 now or so being considered. I think 18 have become law. Uh, and then also the the political and racial gerrymandering that Republicans have indicated they're going to have a willingness to do, all of which is to take away the decision-making from the American people, subvert our nation of our democracy, subvert, you know, this notion of who we think of ourselves, and entrench 
with the Republican Party, um, a minority party in terms of both the number of votes that they get uh, and the support that they are able to, to generate to, to cement this minority party with majority power. And so what we've been trying to do at the organization that I lead, the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, is to fight uh, a couple of components. One is um, the gerrymandering. You know, the August in August 16th, the Census Bureau was going to send the data to the states so that the line drawing, the redistricting, which we do every 10 years, um, can be done. I'm very concerned that Republicans, especially in states like Georgia, Texas, Florida, North Carolina, are going to try to come up with ways in which they draw themselves, uh, continue to draw themselves into power in a way that's, again, inconsistent with our our founding um, ideals. We've also been fighting this problem of voter suppression that you talked about, where these measures are being put in place simply to make it more difficult for all Americans to vote, but in particular to make it more difficult for citizens of color Democratic-leaning, progressive-leaning voters to get to the polls. This is all about power. This is all about the acquisition and the retention of power. And Democrats and progressives have got to be prepared to respond in that way. You know, I think that progressives are too often uncomfortable with the acquisition and the use of power. And Republicans and conservatives are not. This is time for us to stand up, to put on our big boy and big girl pants and fight for um, fight for our democracy. Yeah. Charles Blow has a, a, a the New York Times columnist has a brilliant piece. Uh, I think it was two days ago in the New York Times, basically saying directly to President Biden, if you think that we're going to be able to overwhelm have such a voter turnout, as happened in Georgia you know, last year, such a voter turnout that it can overwhelm the attempts at voter suppression, you are mistaken. And therefore, we need to end the filibuster so we can pass uh, SB1, the For the People Act. Do you agree with that sentiment? And if so, how do we communicate that to the White House and to the few Democrats in the Senate, specifically Manchin and Cinema, although I understand there may be others, who may be reluctant to take on this project. Yeah, you know, you've got to understand what the aims of these measures are. It's not to prevent all black people from voting, uh, all Democrats from voting. It's just to reduce the margins. Uh, if you cut down the black vote by one, two, three percent, uh, the progressive vote, one, two, three percent, Democratic vote, one, two, three percent. Think about all the close elections, including those senatorial elections in, in Georgia and elect, uh, close elections around the country. I mean, again, you look at the presidential election decided by, I guess, one of seventy seven thousand votes, given our, you know, our perverted electoral college system. If you just knock down the percentage of people who get to vote and who vote in a way that Republicans, conservatives don't like, you can have an influence on um, electoral decisions. You can have an, in, an impact on on elections. And so, yeah, you know, black people are going to come out. You know, they're going to stand in line for four hours. You know, studies show that in Atlanta, if you were in a white district, you, you, you had to wait about six minutes to vote. If you're in a black district, you had to wait 51 minutes. Black folks did that. Why should black folks have to do that? You know, why should we risk having the numbers of black people who are unwilling to do that and then leave the lines, have their voices not be not be heard? So this is a time this is a black and white decision. I don't mean racially, but this is this is, you know, this is are you for our democracy or are you against our democracy? Do you stand for our democracy or do you stand for some arcane Senate procedure? 
that has been used in the past to frustrate the movement of this nation um, to, toward what we have been fighting for for over 200 years. Uh, you got to decide. What are you for? It's, at some, we're going to get to the place where it's a binary decision. You're either for democracy or, or you're for, you know, silly um, and, and anti-progressive, um, you know, Senate processes. Is that your message to President Biden? And how do we communicate that to him? We just have, by the way, 40 seconds till we're going to hit a break. My apologies. My message to President Biden is to use the influence that you have and to make do, do what you possibly can to make sure that bills become law. He's a wily Washington guy who does a lot of things behind the scenes, so I'm, I'm withholding any criticism or concerns right now, knowing that they're, they're focused on that. And I'm hoping that, again, he'll use the power of his office to make this happen. Yeah. And what can we do to individually to work on this? Or, and is there a, a website or, or someplace we can support your efforts? Yeah, if you go to allontheline.org, we can certainly talk about all the things that we are, we're doing there. Um, we have a number of ways in which you can become involved in this process. And so I would urge you to go to that website, get involved, and to fight for our democracy. Thank you, allontheline.org. The 82nd Attorney General of the United States, Eric Holder. General Holder, thank you again for dropping by today. It's great talking with you. All right, thanks for having me, Tom. My pleasure, my pleasure, anytime. Tom Harbin here with you. So uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene was on Steve Bannon's radio show this morning, and uh, this is what she had to say. She said, the American people have the power to stop anything bad happening, but pretty soon you're not going to have that power. Like she's trying to continue the, this whole uh, treasonous insurrection that happened on January 6th, apparently. She says, this January 6th committee has started, and, House Speaker, and this is uh, Nancy Pelosi's witch hunt. This is her final vendetta against the president that she hates with a passion. This woman is blind with rage and evil, and she's launching this political attack on all of us. I know for certain I'm one of their targets, Marjorie Trader Greene said. They want members of Congress in jail, and guess who that is? Wow. She goes on to say, Nancy Pelosi is so warped in her thinking, she wants to put President Trump in jail. She wants to put Kevin McCarthy in jail. She wants to put me in jail. Jim Jordan, Mo Brooks, Lauren Boebert, she'd like to put us in jail. Well, you know, if, if the shoe fits, <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, maybe. I just went to The Lauren Boebert, by the way. It's a fascinating website. An amazing moment in our history. One of the people who is participating essentially in this whole Republican effort to say, uh, don't look over there, right? Don't look at January 6th. We don't know, I don't know what's going on, is Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, a former slave state. And uh, as is the case with most of the former slave states, they are passing or have passed legislation to make it harder to vote. Senator Hawley now has also proposed a new law. This is my rant today over at HartmanReport.com, where you can actually read the words from the people who wrote our Constitution. Hawley is, uh, has proposed a law called the Love America Act. And the Love America Act says, and I quote from the proposed law, no federal funds shall be provided to any ed educational agency or school that teaches that the Pledge of Allegiance, the Declaration of Independence, or the Constitution of the United States is a product of white supremacy or racism. That's basically the entire bill. The bill's only three and a half pages long. Just think about that for a minute. America is suffering from an epidemic of political bullying. If you think about it, you can't 
really negotiate with bullies. It's not how their brains work. They're wired differently than average people. They have learned a strategy at some point in their, presumably in their childhood or maybe from their parents. You know, maybe it's just a survival strategy that they've learned. What they have learned is that you don't negotiate. You fight and you win, period. And bullies never stop. I mean, the, you know, the, this is uh, Bill Eddy, who is both a lawyer and a therapist, wrote a column about this for Psychology Today. He said, bullies don't negotiate. They make demands, they make threats, and they fight for them. They generally lack the modern skills of win-win. So don't think of their demands as a form of true negotiation. It's more like warfare, and you don't want to give in to that. So how do we deal with an epidemic of political bullying? I mean, we've got all kinds of political bullies, or uh, of bullies in general. I mean, just all over our country, our landscape is littered with them. Uh, we have the January 6th bullies. You're seeing that played out in Congress right now. Oh, hey, let's, let's put a couple Republicans on the committee to look into January 6th. Oh, we're going to punish them. Yeah. We've got the anti-mask bullies. Oh, you can't, you can't take away my freedom to be infected by a virus that will hijack all the cells in my body. That's freedom, really? Seriously? Uh, you've got the anti-vax bullies. I reprinted part of an email I got from one today, you know, saying basically screw you and, and, uh, and the horse you rode in on, you know? <laughs> it's like, you know, really? Come on. It's a, we have an entire health insurance industry that bullies us. No, we're not going to pay for that process. Oh, you went to the emergency room? No, no, you're going to get stuck with that. We've got bully banks who rip us off, open accounts, uh, close lines of credit so that they can force you into credit cards that are paying 30% interest instead of 16% interest. We've got Wall Street bullies stealing everything that's not nailed down. You've got the anti-abortion bullies uh, harassing women who, want to, who are trying to get an abortion or just even trying to get birth control. We've got religious bullies saying, oh, no, I don't have to get vaccinated. Oh, no, I don't have to pay my taxes. Oh, no, I don't have to, I mean, you know, fill in the blank, right? I don't have to make a cake for a gay couple. I, you know, whatever happened to society? Whatever happened to we're all in this together? Sean T. Smith wrote a book called Surviving Aggressive People. And in that book, he writes, bullies and predators test, prod, and scan for vulnerability. When they do, responding quickly is more important than responding perfectly. In other words, fighting back is imperative immediately. Otherwise, you lose. This was the great lesson of World War II. Neville Chamberlain went over and thought he could negotiate with Adolf Hitler. Oh, yeah, we'll work something out. He just, you know, he's a reasonable guy. He just wants to, you know, uh, restore Germany's place to greatness in the world. No, he wasn't a reasonable guy. He wanted to kill, you know, everybody who wasn't a, a white Aryan and dominate not just Europe, but the entire world for a thousand years of peace. So Chamberlain came back and said, we have secured peace for our time. And, and Churchill was looking at him like, you think so, really? You know, that's what happens with bullies, is you have to beat them. You have to defeat them. Or you have to marginalize them so you don't have to pay attention to them. Unless you know of a different strategy. I mean, you know, have, have, do you have strategies to deal with bullies that have worked? I, you know, I, the, the billionaires started bullying us in the 1980s, demanding that the top tax rate go from 74% down to 25%. Reagan was like, yeah, I'm good with that. And a few Democrats even went along. And see, they got away with that. And so then it was, oh, let's lower the corporate tax rate from around 50% down to around 20%. Okay, they got away with that. 
Oh, let's lower the estate tax. Yeah, they got away with that. And now, what's the average, you know, the top 25 richest people in America, how much, what was the average that they paid in income taxes last year? 3%. This is what happens when you give in to bullies. To put a punctuation mark on this, or the icing on the cake, or whatever other terrible metaphor you want to use, the Democrats are negotiating with Republican bullies to try to come up with an infrastructure deal, a bipartisan infrastructure deal. Now, the Republicans have no intention of ever having a deal. They played this game with Barack Obama for a full year. You know, the whole rope-a-dope thing. They just strung him along for literally a whole year, saying, well, if you just tweak this, we'll be happy. Oh, no, no, why? Hey, we forgot about that. You got to tweak that, we'll be happy. Oh, you know, you can't do that. Oh, and, and he gave in and gave in and gave in and gave in and gave in. And finally, how many Republicans voted for Obamacare? Zero. And they're doing the same damn thing with infrastructure, but back to the tax part of it. So the Democrats had, I mean, this so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is not going to happen, I guarantee you. The so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill, 800 bucks, $800 million over 10 years. That's like 80 million, 80, excuse me, $800 billion over 10 years. That's like $80 billion a year. And it turns out that rich tax cheats are costing the United States somewhere between 500 billion and one and a half trillion dollars a year. And then, I mean, this is according to the Internal Revenue Service. They're saying we just don't have the resources to audit these people. Ever since the Reagan revolution, every time Republicans take control of Congress and produce a new budget, they cut the budget for the IRS, for the inspectors, for the, for the auditors. So now the you're more likely to be audited if you're running a small business and are claiming a home office deduction than if you're a billionaire who's hiding his money in the Caymans. So the Democrats come along and say, hey, we can pay for this whole infrastructure bill simply by throwing a couple hundred million bucks at the IRS to hire some new auditors to start forcing rich tax cheats to pay their damn taxes. We're not talking about increasing taxes. We're not talking about changing the law. We're just talking about enforcing the existing law. And these Republicans who are the first to be in line when it comes to, we need more cops to get control of these out of control black people and young people and whatever. The same Republicans who are so gung-ho for law and order, oh, you wanna hire cops for the IRS? Oh, <laughs> no way. That's a deal breaker. Mitt Romney comes out, you know, <laughs> who went into the business of bullying, by the way. You know, the whole private equity thing, you know, is basically hostile takeovers of companies, drain them dry. Mitt Romney came out and said, uh, you know, we don't want to be funding the IRS like that. I mean, that, you know, you, you don't want to be people going through your papers and your taxes. Or, seriously? We got the QAnon and the anti-vax cultists in America saying that they shouldn't be uh, vaccinated. I mean, it's just... The political bullying seems to never stop. And if Joe Biden, frankly, wants to deal with these guys, he needs to take a lesson from previous presidents who took on the bullies. He needs to pull an LBJ or an FDR and just stand up to them. Just stand up to them. For example, FDR actually raised taxes. You know, when he came into office, top tax rate was 25%. When he left, it was 
<laughs> and, and this is FDR talking back to the bullies. A number of my friends who belong in the very high upper bracket have suggested to me on several occasions of late that if I am re-elected president, they will have to move to some other nation because of high taxes here. Now, I will miss them very much. Come on. It's like, you know, Joe Biden, he says, hey, you know, okay, you don't want to be vaccinated? See you later. Right. I mean, you know, the Democrats need to get a spine. They need to fight back. They need to be pointing out that these are just bullying tactics. And bullies generally are number one, lazy, and number two, cowards. When you fight back, when you kick a bully where it counts or punch him, punch him in the nose, they typically run. We got a bully problem in this country. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Your thoughts on how to deal with our political bullies, our religious bullies, our anti-vax bullies, our cultist bullies? Shane in San Diego. Hey, Shane, thanks for watching us on Twitter Live. What's up? Angry independent, I need you to help me understand why 90% of your focus is on the party that's not in power. Help me, please. 90% of my focus is not on the party, party that's not in power. Uh, first of all, the Republicans are in power all across this country. The Republicans have been blocking progress on anything of consequence. So, so that would be to the extent that I am focusing on Republicans, it's because they are the ones 
who are preventing things from happening, the reason why you don't have a national health care program, the reason why you don't have reasonable taxation in this country. I mean, you just go through the list. The reason why you've got a trillion and a half dollars in student loan debt. Yes, there are some Democrats who go along with those Republicans. But these positions, the reason why the Republican Party is literally the only political party in the world, in any developed nation, that is still claiming that there's no such thing as global climate change. Why? Because they're taking money from fossil fuel billionaires. So, you know, it's like, I would argue that your question is sort of like asking somebody who has cancer why they keep focusing on dealing with their cancer instead of the flu. The Republican Party is a cancer in this country. Now, the Democratic Party needs to get their act together, which was the essence of my rant just a moment ago. It's time to start talking back to the bullies, and I will continue to say that. Uh, Paul in Benton, Pennsylvania. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Just with the COVID and the vaccines. You know, the Democrats should be hanging COVID around their necks. They should be calling this the Republican virus, the Trump virus. And when these governors now, you know, everybody says, oh, they're having this come to Jesus moment. They realize COVID's a problem. You know, it's like, why aren't these people being called out by name, like in Florida, just say, hey, Ron DeSantis is responsible for all these deaths. They're starting to do that. And, and until we do that, I mean, we're going to be, you know, uh, we got the 30 percent stopping all the progress that the other 70 percent wants. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is um, once again, I, I would argue that the problem is that they're using the tactics of bullies and you can't back down. You can't negotiate with bullies. You don't try to be nice to bullies. You speak your truth and then you do what you do. And, and if that involves, you know, shutting them down or pushing back. That's what you have to do. Sandra in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Sandra, what's up? Oh, you were talking about how you deal with bullies earlier, and I just, personal experience has shown for me that you can't run, and you can't just simper and and shrink and act like, oh, well, okay, just just don't do anything. About 50-some years ago, I was crossing a barren college campus in the wintertime, and a pack of dogs showed up, and they were very aggressive. And I had leather gloves on, so I took one of them off and smacked the lead one right in the face. And then Ouch. just literally threw my arms wide and just yelled at them like I was going to destroy them all. And they ran like I was a monster from hell. Yeah. Kind of got to take that approach with Republicans, I think. You just got to make them realize, you know, I'm, I'm done with you. This is over. Yeah. Because like in Nebraska here, in sunny Nebraska, we have a governor who decided, oh, COVID's done. Close down the entire department to provide information and whatnot. That was a few weeks ago. 800% rise in COVID cases now in Nebraska. My employer, oh yeah, we want everybody to come back to the office in September when school starts because it's all closed and clear. I mean, everything's fine. And every week we get a notice, oh, well, somebody that was in the building has COVID. So... We're going to take care of that, and it's just every week. Well, here's another example of it, too, Sandra. The, uh, this just, uh, what did I do with it? Ah, here we go. This on Daily Kos, Joan McCarter writing over at Daily Kos. Another week, another infrastructure week, right? Republicans uh, trying to work out this so-called bipartisan bill. And it turns Mm -hmm. out that uh, the Republicans are saying that uh, they have some problems with the bill right now. 
And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and the problems have to do with highways, bridges, water funding, broadband, the Davis-Bacon law that requires prevailing wages on, on federal funds, using unspent COVID money as a pay for the infrastructure bank and transit. I mean, that's all that's yeah. all that they're worried about yeah. is, you know, or that they haven't reached agreement with the Democrats on. Um, although they had agreement last week on most of these things. Now they're deciding, no, we don't have an agreement. I, you know, we thought we did. In fact, Susan Collins last Thursday said on Monday there would be a vote on this thing. No yeah. vote. It's the old rope yeah. Yeah, Biden has to has to pull an FDR, and he has to do it big time. He really does. He really does. And Schumer needs to be sitting at Nancy Pelosi's well, feet. I think there's a guy, there's a, a senator named Ryan, and I've heard him speak a few times in Congress. And I think maybe he needs to substitute for Schumer a couple of times because he's got enough fire in him that he can get there and get the point across. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. I'm not sure who you're talking about, Sandra. Yeah, I can't think oh, of his first name, but it's Tim, something Tim Ryan. Ryan's in the so. house. He's running for the Senate in Ohio. Maybe that's who yeah, you're thinking of. Yeah. Tim, well, Tim Ryan's a good guy. To, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did a really fiery speech, in fact, on the floor of the House to kind of launch his candidacy for the Senate from Ohio. He's running to replace Rob Portman. just expand a little bit. This isn't so much specifically about bullies as it is about grifters, but they're basically using the same same strategies. And there's also this massive disinformation industry, which is just shocking. Two pieces in the New York Times that are really worth noting. I want to highlight for you. One is by Shira Frankel, and it's titled The Most Influential Spreader of Coronavirus Information Online. This is this guy, he's an osteopath down in Florida. He's got a multi-million dollar empire. His name is Dr. Mercola. And I remember back in the 90s, maybe in the early 2000s, reading uh, Mercola's website, and he often had eh, some pretty good information about natural remedies and things, you know, and uh, should you use this herb for that, and you know, the, this vitamin does that, and, and that kind of stuff. But he has just completely gone off the edge with COVID, uh, arguing against the vaccines and saying that if you just buy the vitamin D that he's selling, everything will be great. And he's selling insanely expensive vitamin D, of course, when you can buy it super cheap. A researcher at the University of Washington says Mercola is the pioneer of the anti-vaccine movement. He's a master of capitalizing on periods of uncertainty like the pandemic to grow his movement. Now, he's not alone in this, obviously. But the bottom line, it turns out, you know, we thought that a lot of this vaccine disinformation was just coming out of partisans, right? It was coming from people who were followers of Donald Trump, who wanted, they wanted to blame it on China instead of Trump's own incompetence. The fact that Taiwan and the United States both got our first cases on the same day, January 20th of 2020, of a year ago, year and a half ago, our first cases on the same day. And Taiwan, I don't have the recent numbers. Probably with this Delta variant, they're, they're having a, a struggle right now. I just don't know. I haven't looked recently. But as of a month or so ago, or maybe two months ago, Taiwan had had like fewer than three or 400 deaths in the entire country. Now, yeah, it's a smaller country in the United States. I think it's 24 million people. It might be as much as 30. It's somewhere in that neighborhood. That's, you know, it's like 10% of the United States. If they had two, 300 deaths, 
and we had you know two or three thousand, then you'd say that's proportionate. But no, we had six hundred thousand because Taiwan did mass mandates and they used their national health system to do a, a contact trace program, and it really worked well for them. We thought that the anti-vax stuff was coming out of these people who were kind of trying to cover up the fact that Donald Trump, through his incompetence and his bungling and his bumbling, and perhaps through his malice, if you go back to April 7th when the stories came out that black people were dying at higher rates of COVID than white people were, that week after April 7th, that's when Rush Limbaugh stopped saying, oh, we need to do something about that. That's when everybody, the whole right wing uh, and, the, and the Trump administration just came to a screeching halt. So we thought it was all just politics. We thought it was all just, you know, Republican grifters who were, you know, trying to hang on to power and didn't want to look bad. And of course, that's still a huge piece of it. But it turns out there's money to be made. So now we've got, you know, these, these healthcare grifters. And also there's money to be made spreading lies. The other story I wanted to point to you in the New York Times is by Max Fisher. It's titled Disinformation for Hire, a Shadow Industry. And it's about these companies, including one in the United States, but uh, some, one's out of Brazil, one's out of Russia, one's out of London, one's out of the U.S., that will spread lies on social media on behalf of political candidates, on behalf of movements, on behalf of billionaires, on behalf of whoever pays them. And it's a damn breathtaking story that Max Fisher has put together here at, uh, over at the New York Times. Disinformation for hire, a shadow industry is quietly booming is the title. And it's really worth checking out. So here we are. We're being assaulted from all directions by these bullies. How are you fighting back? You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. I am calling them out. Marion, Sunrise Beach, Missouri. Hey, Mary, Missouri seems to be an epicenter for the COVID. I hope you're keeping safe. Absolutely. And um, our attorney general is suing the city of St. Louis because they're thinking about imposing mandatory masks indoors. That's how crazy Missouri is. I was calling to say, you know, you were talking about the bully. I want to give a tip of the hat to Speaker Pelosi because she really told Mr. McCarthy, shove it where the moon don't shine. Yeah. And so I think she's our greatest combatant against those bozos. Yeah. I, and I, I wish that she could mentor just, Chuck Schumer. Amen. And the vice president and the president. Okay. Richard in St. Louis. Hey, Richard. Another Missouri call. Hey, Richard, what's on your mind today? I want to back up the previous caller and say that, yes, our attorney general, who is a bully, as, as it happens, part of the Republican supermajority we have here, mm -hmm. is suing the city of St. Louis and St. Louis County because their mask mandate that's been reestablished re begins today. Hmm. And, of course, you, you can't have that sort of thing that you know everybody has to be free to infect everybody else. Right. So, I, this is what I don't get is you, you have the freedom to have every cell in your body hijacked by a virus. How is that freedom? I know, it's it's amazing, but it comes back to, in Missouri, we have this Republican supermajority in the House and the Senate and all the top offices of the state, and talk about bullies, they ram through everything imaginable because they know they can't be stopped. Right. Although our valiant Democrats in the legislature are holding the line the best they can, and when they fight hard, a lot of times the bullies will back down, even if, they could win, but if you fight back hard enough, they will back down. That's always been the way with bullies. 
as you mentioned, they're they're cowards and they can be fought successfully. And that's pretty much uh, what I had to say. It, it says here you wanted to say that uh, Republicans were playing rope-a-dope on infrastructure, too. Sure. That was the other thing I was going to back you up on. Uh, you would think that eventually that the the Democrats would, would figure out what's being done to them and, and quit falling for it yeah. because they, they seem to every time. Well, this has been going on since the 90s. I mean, you know, this <laughs> Newt Gingrich did this to Bill Clinton. So, yeah, you would I, you would think, you would think. And uh, But, I, you know, there's, for some reason, and, and maybe it has to do with the media, just celebrating this wonderful idea of bipartisanship. We've got to, you know, work together. It's like, how can you have collaboration with Hannibal Lecter, you know, it's it's like it's like no, there are some people you cannot negotiate with in good faith. Richard, thank you for the call. John in Centerville, Michigan. Hey, John, what's up? Well, I'm I'm chiming in on that idea that uh, infrastructure should not be put on a back burner in any way, and it should be declared by the Democrats to be exactly what it is, an investment in our long-term future, yeah. plus maintenance of our permanent structures. And uh, they're getting away with uh, declaring that it's just big, wild spending. It's not. It's what we need to meet the future. Well, and this started in the 1980s with, with Reagan. I mean, you know, he, when he came into office, our national debt was only $800 billion. And the top tax rate was 74% on individuals and around 50% on corporations. And even capital gains paid taxes. And there was a fairly hefty inheritance tax, estate tax. And he cut all those things. He cut the top tax rate down to 25%. He cut the corporate tax rate down to in, in the neighborhood of the 30s. I, I don't recall the exact number, but it was in the low 30s, as I recall. I mean, he cut the inheritance tax. Uh, that was around the time the Frank Luntz, I believe it was just a little later than that, the front, Frank Luntz got hired by the Walton family to come up with the word death tax and promote it all across the country. And, and uh, so by cutting all those taxes, basically what he was doing, what Reagan did, is he gave this giant subsidy to the ultra-wealthy who were no longer paying their taxes. Well, they're no longer paying their taxes. What does that mean? Less money in the Treasury. Less money in the Treasury. What does that mean? Deficits. When, when Reagan left office, he had tripled the national debt. It was $2.4 trillion when he left office. It was $3.5 trillion by the time George Herbert Walker Bush left office. And, and then, you know, it's just every Republican president ever since then. Another tax cut, another war. And, you know, more hits to it. So, because they are absolutely unwilling to tax billionaires and big corporations, we, you know, our, our infrastructure maintenance, uh, forget about even building new infrastructure. I mean, we're still dealing, you know, we still have schools and hospitals that were built in the 60s and 70s. But, you know, the, the main, main maintenance of the infrastructure just went to hell. And so you've got states, particularly red states, where, you know, there's potholes everywhere and, and, and things are falling down and bridges are about to collapse and everything. And the Republicans are still, as you point out, John, are still saying, oh, my God, you want to spend money on this? Oh, you big spending liberals. Oh, you know, we can't have that. It's unbelievable. You know, quack, quack, quack. And uh, it's just, I, I think that people are figuring their game out, John. I really do. I think the American people. I hope so. I don't think we should let them control the narrative, like uh, the deal where the, the Republicans allowed Trump to continue to run for office. He should have been cut short when 14 or 16 of them were running against him. They should have put the power to, uh, of the Republican Party in play to say, you cannot be running if the rest of us are, are giving our tax uh, information and you, you're playing a different game. Our party won't let you do that. And yeah. we wouldn't have been stuck with that miserable skunk if they'd stood up and been real 
Well, and they could have done that with a change in the in the rules for, for the Republican Party. Uh, although, you know, he may have sued, who knows, but they probably could have pulled that off. You're right, John. Carol in Eureka, Montana. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind today? Watching the hearings and extremely powerful um, testimony from the uh, Capitol Police. I mean, it's just heart-wrenching. And their goal, it was sounding like it was that they wanted the perpetuators of this to be held accountable. And I totally agree. But lots of times people can be held accountable and they can still, you know, sail off into the sunset fat, dumb, and happy. I really want to see a comeuppance. And the definition of a comeuppance is a punishment or fate that someone deserves. And so that's what I would like to see. I would like to have the people that perpetuated this from the top down face a comeuppance, and I would just like to go on the record as saying that. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Carol. And, and, you know, starting with Donald Trump, but um, this, you know, it, it, there's increasingly it's looking like this may actually be this january 6th attack may actually be something that they had planned for four years before that donald trump was fully expecting to lose to hillary clinton that uh roger stone and some of his friends had planned this stop the steal thing for 2016 and they just uh now you know this 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 is speculation but uh it's not my own speculation it's a lot of people suggesting this that they might have just dusted this thing off I mean, this is how this is how just absolutely craven. What were the points uh, during the hearings this morning that that uh, really struck you the most, Carol? Um, just how disrespected they felt, and um, that uh, that they had given their lives, uh, put their lives on the line for the the same Congress that has now turned against them. And they, a lot of them had been in the military, or some of them had been in the military and defended our country. And um, they are suffering from PTSD for a lot of reasons, and this just adds fuel to their poor fire. And they'll never get over this unless there is a comeuppance. Yeah, yeah, a, uh, uh, a, a moment of accountability. It's, it's something that's very important. Um, I agree. Yeah. Carol, thanks so much for the call. It's nice to hear from you. Thank you for taking it. My Good pleasure. Night. My pleasure. Uh, I, I, I just, this thing blew me away. I just, just to recap, uh, Chairman Benny Thompson, uh, Benny Thompson is the uh, uh, Democrat from Mississippi, is the chair of this committee, this uh, January 6th uh, select committee, House Select Committee to investigate. Um, this is not their official title. I keep inserting the word terrorist, but... Uh, I think legitimately so, to investigate the terrorist attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And uh, he is joined in that committee by Pete Aguilar, a Democrat from California's 31st District, um, who first joined Congress in 2014. Um, He used to be the mayor of Redlands, California. But by Liz Cheney, who has been in the House, uh, this is her third term since 2017, of course, the daughter of Dick Cheney. Adam Kinzinger, the Republican from Illinois' 16th District, uh, who serves on the Energy and Commerce and Foreign Affairs Committee. He is a, um, an Air Force uh, veteran. He served in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, Zoe Lofgren, who uh, is, represents California's 19th district, she's been in the House 14 terms since 1995. Elaine Luria, who from the Democrat from Virginia, who's been in the House since 2019. Stephanie Murphy, Florida's 7th district, who's been in the House since 2017. Jamie Raskin of Maryland, 
been there since 2017, and Adam Schiff, who's been there since 2001 in the House. He represents California. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Mark in Sox City, Wisconsin. Hey, Mark, your thoughts? The original Pledge of Allegiance is actually written by a socialist minister, one Francis Bellamy. And it was sort of generalized because he kind of, I guess, it, from reading about, he actually he'd hoped it'd be the pledge would be used by citizens in any country. I'm reading that from what it says in Wikipedia, and apparently, you know, I've I've read that before. But it was, you know, interesting that they didn't add the under God until the 1950s because right. we were fighting against the godless communists. Godless communists. <laughs> but you brought up the Confederacy, and what is interesting of note is that. In the Confederate Constitution, they didn't call them persons anymore. They called them, actually called them slaves. And the preamble to the Confederate Constitution, it was just not bringing a nation together, rather just a collection of states, leaving out the whole general welfare clause that is so important in our Constitution. And I think they also left out the common defense um, because the Confederacy was set up to fail from the, from the beginning because, you know, number one, they were underpinning their whole thing on slavery. And number two is, is that they never were fighting, you know, that they're only tangentially fight, fighting as a unified country. Right. The, well, there was no collective army state. or anything like that. You know, in, they were all the under the traitor General Lee, who violated his oath, oath to the Constitution, as did most of the leaders in the Confederacy that had served in the United States government, they you know, violated their oath to the U.S. Constitution, took an oath to another state, to, to, the, to the traitorous Confederacy, and then unfortunately many of them were let back into the, back to serve in, in our government once again, after, you know, after only a brief period of time had elapsed after the Civil War. I mean, that the Confederates were lucky we didn't you know, reading a little bit of history, what happened back in days when civil wars happened in the past, the rebellious individuals were not treated so gently as we mm -hmm. treated them here, in spite of Reconstruction, how, how horrible we thought Reconstruction was. In other, in other nation states that experienced civil war of that nature, that many of the 
combatants and leaders were executed, you know, after the revel after they were defeated. Sure. I mean that that's yeah, and, that, and it not, not just, only didn't happen here, we we embraced the the Confederate soldiers. Uh, I mean, this was Lincoln's time to heal, you know. Right, and um, I'm not talking about the soldiers. I'm talking about the leadership. Is yeah. that you know my biggest beef is against, yeah. even though some of the soldiers actually did violate their oaths too. You know, they originally were soldiers in the Union, probably, and then they went to the Confederacy. Yeah. I mean, it just is. I mean, and Holly, I mean, that these guys, the Confederacy, we crushed the Confederacy, and I guess we need to crush it again in words and not in battle again. That, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's remarkable stuff. Mark, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you're a, an astute observer of, uh, <laughs> of history and politics. Um, it seems to me that this attack on the Capitol building on January 6th that we saw this, you know, compelling um, hearing and, and testimony this morning about um, is pretty much unparalleled outside of 1861, outside of the, the you know, the, the declaration of secession by the, by the Confederacy and the, and the Civil War. I, I can't think of any other time in American history where we have had a, uh, an organized, orchestrated, uh, run from the inside, run from within the, the elected political structure of America, attempt to subvert the law of the United States and over and overthrow the government of the United States. Can you? No, we, we have we've had we've had traitorous attempts in the past. Burr and his collaboration with James Wilkerson, and I sure. I pick up some of the stuff only tangentially because I'm not a I kind of skim through it and I find little bits that interest me and dive into them. But I mean, with it, this is just, these guys are just traitors. And I mean, and we need to ferret them out that in the, that are serving in the Congress right now and expose them. I mean, just to, to drop the shroud from them and they're not going to be like the story about a Phaedra, was it the, um, the prostitute, they dropped the robes and they found her not guilty that before the, uh, Athenian Senate or something like that, or before her judges, that um, because she's so beautiful, they couldn't find these guys have to be exposed for the ugly traitors that they are. I mean, that Holly and and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Barbert, they may think that they're serving the country, but they're serving a different country than they took the oath to. Yeah, I'm with you. Mark, thank you very much for the call. Thank you, brother. Yeah, always nice to hear from you. Uh, lines are open, 202-808-9925. Uh, I just wanted to, I'm going to play a clip here uh, out of my computer, if you've got that, Sean. Do we, can we get audio out of my computer now? We can try. We'll find out. Uh, this is uh, Jamie Raskin talking with uh, the young officer. Um, I'm sorry, I don't have his name right on the tip of my tongue or in my notes. Uh, he was the guy who got crushed in the door. Um, but here, here is the questioning. Someone would take issue with the uh, title of terrorist. It's gained a lot of uh, notoriety in our vocabulary oh, in the past the few decades. Himself. And uh, we like to believe that, no, that couldn't happen here. No, no domestic terrorism, no homegrown threats. But I came prepared. U.S. Code, Title 18, Part 1, Chapter 113, B as in Brown, Section 2331, the term domestic terrorism means activities that involve acts dangerous to human life that are a violation of the criminal laws of the United States or of any state, and B, appear to be intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population, or to influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion, or 
to affect the conduct of a government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping, and occur primarily within the territorial jurisdiction of the United States. That was, uh, that, that was Officer Hodges, uh, just to correct that. And it's so clear to me that what we witnessed was domestic terrorism. There's just no other way to call it, you know. And I was so proud of, uh, it was Officer Hodges who kept referring to the, the so-called insurrectionists, the so-called rioters, the so-called mob as terrorists. This was a terror attack on the United States by people within the United States. The last time this happened was 1861. Yes, we are there again. And welcome back, Tom Harbin here with you. Uh, here we have Marjorie Trader Greene saying that this is Nancy Pelosi's attempt to put her in jail as she's talking to Steve Bannon, the guy who was busted for defrauding Americans out of millions of dollars with a phony build the wall scam. You've got Elise Stefanik, who is now the number three Republican in the House of Representatives, appearing at a press conference this morning saying that Nancy Pelosi bears responsibility as Speaker of the House for the tragedy that occurred on January 6th. Sorry, it wasn't a tragedy. It was a, an attempted coup. It was an insurrection. It was treason. It was, it was a t an act of terrorism. As, as they keep, you know, as, as the, several of the police officers kept saying. Meanwhile, in St. Regis, Montana, over 200 people gathered uh, this last weekend for a uh, red pill festival to talk about how uh, Donald Trump is really president and COVID is not a thing and it's part of an international conspiracy to get us all vaccinated with microchips that are going to track where we go, blah, 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 blah. It's nuts. Sharon in Flushing, New York. Hey, Sharon, thanks for calling. What's on your mind today? Yes, hi, Tom. How are you? Good. So, watching that committee it was it was so painful it was to watch each officer go down the line and say how like uh officer dunn for example when he said um he had to ask himself is is this this is America. After being called the N-word repeatedly, and I mean, this is a exactly. white supremacist mob. We should just be right up front about that. Donald Trump's followers, and he said that, you know, that Donald Trump's followers uh, tend to be white supremacists. Or maybe it was, no, it wasn't, he, he wasn't the one who said it. It was the guy who got crushed in the door. I'm sorry, I, I don't uh, have memorized all the names. Hodges, thank Officer you. Yes. Hodges. Yeah. It was so painful. And, and when they started with Officer uh, Gunnell, mm. and when he said... Uh, yeah, they, they keep saying, uh, you know, members of Congress, the Republicans, how um, it was a love fest. And, oh, no, Donald Trump was saying that. Everybody right. was hugged. They were hugging and kissing the officers. Just and he this said, weekend, oh, Yeah, he said, oh, they were hugging and kissing the officers. He said, so let's go to Donald Trump and, and, let, and let, let them do... To, to him, wherever he is, what they did to us. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it was just so pain. Like, you could just see the pain. You can feel it. Yeah. Each officer. Yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was bringing me to tears at several points. It, it was, me too. this is supposed to be America, and we're supposed to be setting the standard for around the world. 
Yeah. I completely agree, Sharon. Uh, it, it, it was tough, it, and and it's it's stuff that every American needed to see. Calvin in uh, Dayton, Kansas. It, it says you disagree with me, Calvin. About what? I disagree in that everybody that participated in January sixth should be prosecuted. But why don't you bring in the over two thousand officers that were injured in all the left riots of last summer? Antifa, BLM. If you're going to prosecute one, baby, you better prosecute them all. Maybe I missed something here, Calvin. I don't recall uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, anybody, uh, you know, who even purports to be a spokesperson for Black Lives Matter. Or any, no, let me finish my sentence, for God's sake. And I don't recall anybody from, you know, who says that they're representing anti-fascism, saying that they wanted to overthrow the government of the United States. What did I miss? What about Portland? There was no attempt to they overthrow barred, the government of the United no, States. Barred, there were people you're, protesting you're attacking, you're police killing black building. people. You are attacking a federal building. Yeah, I'm not. I I'm not defending that, Calvin. I'm not okay, defending. You know, but that. But that is not the they same are thing. They blocking the doors and trying to burn people inside. Yeah, that is not the same thing as trying to stop an election. Bull. If you're going to prosecute one, prosecute them all. Sure. And they, and they, by the way, there's a, there's a guy here in Portland who just got six years in prison for trying to set that federal building on fire. One guy. Well, there were several people who were arrested. His his girlfriend is also looking at time in jail. But the fact of the matter is, Calvin, that is not the same thing. I realize you're all upset that there were, that there were black people saying, Hey, wait a minute. What about our rights? And please stop killing us. I get it. You know, you're, you're, you're clearly upset about that. that. I'll stand up for peaceful protest any day of the week. But when your peaceful protest violates my rights to free movement, it's no longer a peaceful protest. Calvin, I don't know anybody who is defending violence. You are. No, I'm not. I'm why telling you, it's not. About, it's not the. Why did we talk about all the riots? It is not the same. Why did we talk about thing. all the riots that went on during the summer? How many police officers were injured or killed? I, it, to the best of my knowledge, no police over officers 2, were killed. No, over come 2, on. Over two thousand. Now Calvin, you're bringing up four cops. Or Calvin, no, you guys are so. It, oh, it, this is such a, such a terrible false equivalence, Calvin. You have people who tried to overthrow the government of the United States. They tried to do what the Confederacy tried to do, and you're trying to claim that that's the same thing as people saying, "Hey, wait a minute, stop shooting at us. Stop trying to kill us because of the color of our skin." That is, a, frankly, Calvin, it's despicable. I see Calvin just hung up on me. Wow. This is what's coming. This is the thing with this Montana Red Pill Festival. This is what's coming. These people saying, oh, no, we're going we're gonna to figure out all kinds of weird, you know, otherisms and, ju- and, and whataboutisms and strange justifications for trying to tear down democracy in the United States. It's tragic what the right wing has brought this country to. And it's being funded by right wing billionaires who have been funding this don't trust government thing now for 40 years, simply because they don't want to pay their damn taxes. Listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.